So from the overall economic space of Singapore, I like to think of uh, trust as one of the key factors that has really brought Singapore to what it is uh, today. In the broad theme of trust, three elements. One, connectivity. The second is innovation, really. And the last is uh, talent. Trust in terms of the physical infrastructure and the ability to get things done. How do we continue to remain connected and continue to leverage all the seaports and airports? Just basic infrastructure. They hold trust as well as a system of rules and guidelines such that people know the environment they operate in. For Singapore, there are two real urban dynamics that play an important role. The first is our urban infrastructure. So from the beginning, we planned the city very efficiently. We built up the necessary urban infra infrastructure, whether this is housing, transport, ports, the airport. So we ensured that there was sufficient infrastructure to let the economy function efficiently so that people could get to work. Uh, companies would be able to have access to stable electricity, internet, all the basic hygiene factors for, for businesses to operate. And the second thing we did was that we planned for clustering. What I mean is that we intentionally set out a central business district. We had firms who could work closely together. We also had decentralized uh, business districts. So that is a process that is still ongoing. Uh, some of the examples in more recent times would be your Pongo Digital District, Jurong Innovation District. So in Singapore, our urban planning is very focused on the needs of businesses, of the economy. We want to create innovation clusters where firms, entrepreneurs who come together, new ideas and new businesses. So in that way, we experience a lot of increasing returns to our economic activity because we plan the space very carefully to cater to the needs of all these businesses. So Singapore's neutral location is really something that facilitates this connectivity as well. Because companies then look into Singapore as a neutral standpoint, as somewhere where East meets West, where cultures are understood, but also global business laws are also recognised and practices are also recognised as well. And so if, you, if I think about this client who came overseas and met us here in Singapore, they really wanted to get things done as quickly as possible and as much as possible. And I think it was amazing that what brings out Singapore as a HQ location, a business location, in terms of the ecosystem of business partners, so you have business connectivity and you had a physical proximity as Singapore being a small island, that he could quickly connect with many different kinds of folks in order to think about how his logistics needs could be adequately addressed. And he had also personal financial needs as well, which I think uh, overall he was able to address and then be able to meet the right people in order to do so. As a global financial centre, I think it is critical that we remain competitive and relevant to this increasingly digitised uh, global economy. And one of the ways we have done so is to explore these emerging sectors such as fintech, cryptocurrency, blockchain, the ways that technology has intersected with finance, with economic activity. And I believe that we have built up a lot of the expertise for exploring these sectors. So that is a key way that we have retained the competitiveness of our global financial centre. Over the past you know, 10 to 20 years, what really drove innovation was really something along the lines of a knowledge economy, whereby the universities and the research institutes in Singapore actually contributed much in order to drive innovation and really boost the knowledge capacity. And much of some of the newer industries like biotechnology came out from that knowledge base. But if I think about the future and I think about innovation, 
has not lost its scientific appeal, but it has added the elements of speed as well as agility. And as I was talking to some of the startups in Singapore itself, they talk about how in ASEAN, the capabilities may be uneven, but if you know how the culture and the business and work processes of some of the IT and traditional comm science people, you can still tap on that talent in order to drive that digital innovation that you're also seeking. And so what I see is you need new capabilities on digital front and agile front, a mix of business processes and digital. But I think that new capability for Singapore to garner and manage regional, if not global talent in order to achieve innovation across borders, I think that will render Singapore well in terms of innovation in the future uh, itself. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for Singapore to tap into the global digital economy. And we have developed the economy in a way. We have developed a very strong global financial centre. We have fostered the creation of a tech sector, an innovation hub. And certainly we have planned the city in such a way that space is created for all these businesses. So I think there's plenty of opportunity for Singapore in the post-COVID world. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Francesca and I'm your MC for today. Welcome to Singapore Perspectives, the 2022 edition of the annual flagship conference of the Institute of Policy Studies. We're very pleased to have you here with us today and we'd like to thank our donors whose names are listed on the screen for their generous support. IPS will be posting highlights of our discussions today on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. If you are doing the same on your social media accounts, please use our conference hashtag, hashtag SP2022City. And now, may I invite IPS Director, Mr. Janadas Devan, to give his opening remarks. Ladies and gentlemen, Your Excellencies, welcome to SP 2022. Um, this actually happens to be the second time we are doing it in this fashion, a hybrid uh, conference. Um, this today's event, conference, hybrid conference, um, was preceded by two days of um, virtual conferencing. Um, I apologize for the trouble we put you through uh, doing ART tests before you come here and then submitting your report but you know, we have to do this and just get on with it. There are advantages. Um, we've discovered virtual conferencing and as a result, uh, we've been able to have many more sessions than we usually do, um, including inviting uh, um, uh, speakers from around the world, uh, Europe and America, uh, juggling the time zones um, and so on. So actually SP um, has become more various, uh, more diverse, um, and unfortunately also, and perhaps fortunately, longer. I'll begin today's conference by making a few remarks. Singapore has always been outward directed. Its meaning and significance, its raison d'etre, has always taken bearing from beyond our shores, from the immediate region, from the ancestral homes of our constituent, constituent races, from the globe. 
Our exceedingly small size has ensured that we have always had to be in search of hinterlands, markets, multilateral fora, vaster vistas. And our history has underlined why this island can never be entire of itself. Geography and history have both conspired to make us peculiarly open and porous. The fate of cities, even global cities, to always want to be part of something larger has always expressed itself in peculiarly pronounced ways in our case. Take a look at our major metropolitan dailies, the Straits Times in English, Yan He Cha Pao in Chinese. Most of the news in both papers, more than half on most days, three quarters on some occasions, are not about Singapore. No other major metropolitan paper anywhere else in the world, not the Times of London or the Times of New York, Le Monde or Asahe Shimbun, give as much space as we do, as our dailies do to the rest of the world. We in Singapore are as interested in what is going on in Indonesia and Malaysia, China and India, the United States and Britain, as we are about what's going on on this little red dot. I imagine that would describe the mental landscape of our earliest immigrants here too. Most of our Chinese and Indian ancestors, and perhaps a good part of our Malay ancestors too, who came here from the Nusantara, would have been more exercised by news about their homelands than they would have been about the goings-on in this colony. This, after all, was to be a temporary sojourn. Scratch a living here, spend as much money as, send as much money as possible to the family back home and return home to rest your tired bones. I digress, but it is worth noting that most of our ancestors resemble more the migrant workers in our midst today than they do us. We might bear that in mind once in a while when we look at our migrant workers. There, by the grace of God, go our forefathers and foremothers. Also remember that it wasn't until after World War II or so that the majority of people living here were not born elsewhere. For most of the 19th century and a good part of the 20th, the majority here were in effect migrant workers, or MWs as we call them. I recall a Jewish scholar saying once, wherever it is that you die, that is your country. I suppose that is why Rupert Brooke, a World War I poet, could write, if I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Where did our forefathers want to die? Even if much of their lives were spent here, their hearts invariably yearned for their ancestral homes in the evenings of their lives. Even my mother, a sixth-generation Singaporean, asked that her ashes be immersed at the confluence of the Ganga, Yamuna, and Sarasvati rivers in Allahabad, now renamed Prayagraj. How did Singapore, just a place, a city but not yet home for most of its 200 years modern history, become home for us? Or to put it differently, how do we get from Singapore to Singaporean, to use the evocative tagline of the Bicentennial Exhibition, from Singapore to Singaporean? How do we make this place unknown, our own? The simple answer is, it didn't happen in a straight line. History has many cunning passages, contrived corridors and issues. 
Our fathers, grandmothers and great-grandfathers learned to be nationalists in the years preceding the Second World War and after by imitating nationalists in China, India, Indonesia. If there were no Indian national movement, if there were no Chinese revolutions of 1911 and then 1949, if there were no Indian, Indonesian revolution, nobody in Singapore would have thought of revolting against British rule, let alone the possibility of independence. What's more, even then, nobody thought of a Singaporean nationalism. They could only conceive of a Malayan nationalism. Thus, there was no Malayan Communist Party. There was a Malayan Communist Party, never the Singapore Communist Party. Thus, the Malayan people's anti-Japanese army, not the Singaporean anti-Japanese army. Thus, merger with Malaya was declared to be the aim of the People's Action Party when it was formed 68 years ago to this year, not, independent, not independence as a city-state. We call them our founding fathers, Lee Kuan Yew, Go Keng Sui, and so on. But they began their political lives thinking they might found something else beside an independent Singapore. They never thought there would one day be Singaporeans who would claim them for paternity. And they never conceived the possibility of Singapore being a city-state, the only one in existence today. The Vatican City and Monaco are not full-fledged states. A state must have the power to demarcate and control its borders, decide who belongs in the state, who doesn't. In other words, it must control its borders and define its population. It must be able to do both. Singapore is the only city-state in existence today with the attributes of a state the only successor in the modern era of the Greek city-states of the 5th to the 4th century BCs, like Athens and Sparta, and the Italian city-states of the Renaissance, like Rome, Venice, and Florence. And yet, we didn't arrive at this unique destiny by design. We stumbled into it, tripped and fell into existence at a city-state en route to becoming the New York of Malaysia as Tunku Abdul Rahman hopefully characterized us, for we were to have been their New York as Kuala Lumpur was to be their Washington, D.C. Nor did we wake on August 10, 1965, suddenly realizing we were going to be a global city. Indeed, as late as March 1966, S. Rajaratnam, another founding father, is on record saying, the very idea of a Singaporean identity was ludicrous, for it was inevitable that we would so soon re-merge with Malaysia. Look at the date again, March 1966, just one month after he produced the first draft of the Singapore Pledge. Rajaratnam was saying, even then, that it was impossible for the city to exist without its immediate hinterland Malaya or Malaysia, as it became. It was not till 1972, seven years after separation, that Rajaratnam was to, was to proclaim Singapore as a global city. It was an epochal moment in our history. I remember the profound impact the speech had on my generation. Till then, we had no idea what story we were to tell ourselves about ourselves. It was a Eureka moment that speech for us, aha, we told ourselves, that is what we are. We are a global city. It wasn't Malaya 
that was our hinterland, we were wrong about needing a geographically contiguous hinterland. Rather, the world, the globe, was our true hinterland. When the globe has our hinterland, this city-state will survive by serving the world, by being useful to all and sundry near and far, by linking up with other global cities, by being open to global capital, innovation and talent. This is not the place to rehearse in detail how we arrived at this formulation of our destiny as a global city. Suffice to say, many things contributed to Rajaratnam's seminal insight. Among them, I would mention three. One, it was Albert Winsemius, the Dutch economist, who became a close associate of our founding leaders, who first told them in the dark weeks following separation that they should snap out of their blue funk. Why are you so worried about the loss of the common market with Malaysia, he asked them. The world is your oyster, your market, three billion people, not the 10 million then in Malaysia. Second, by the late 1960s, Singapore had decided to industrialize by attracting multinational companies or MNCs to invest here, bringing their technology and know-how and producing for global markets. That was Mr. Lee's seminal insight of how we might leapfrog the region. This succeeded the earlier model of industrialization, which was import substitution and producing for the common market with Malaysia. And finally, as luck would have it, and though we didn't know it then, our post-independence development coincided with a relatively benign period in world history. Barriers to trade were falling, and what we now refer to as globalization began to take off. It is essential to note this trajectory. It wasn't the ideological insight of Singapore as a global city that produced our economic strategy. It was our economic strategy of pursuing MNC-led industrialization, even as barriers to trade fell everywhere that gave rise to the insight that we could be a global city. As Karl Marx would say, is the forces of production or the economy stupid? I might, at this stage, specify three paradigmatic shifts in our modern history as a city. I don't offer this with the rigor of scholarship, but it's an aid memoir, as it were, a rough guide for possible further investigation. In the first, from roughly 1819 to 1942 or so, this city was an outpost of empire. For more than a century, the British saw Singapore as the means of advancing their interests in the Far East, including China, and to help protect the Western approach to the jewel in the crown, the British Raj, which is why the naval base was located here. It was not to defend, it was never to defend Singapore. Within this frame of empire, our ancestors came here for the most part to earn a living, not to settle down and found new communities. In the second, from roughly after the Second World War in the wake of nationalist movements sweeping the Afro-Asian landmass, this city dreamt of itself as part of its natural, geographically contiguous hinterland, Malaya. But we tripped over that nightmare and stumbled into our third paradigm. Singapore is a global city and the world's only city-state. Is that the end of our history? Shall we forever find fulfillment in this third paradigm? Again, I'm unable to offer more than a rough suggestion for possible further reflection. Singapore, I think all of us would agree, 
cannot survive other than as a global city, open to cap global capital, innovation, and talent. But in the decades since independence, Singapore has also become increasingly less a place and more a home to Singaporeans. From Singapore to Singaporeans, that really happened. We now do have a pronounced Singaporean identity. Many of our founding leaders, including Mr. Lee, doubted if we, if we were a nation. They doubted that a Singaporean identity strong enough to transcend our separate racial and religious identities could form so soon in our history. I would hesitate to say they were wrong, but I think we have succeeded to a greater extent than our founding leaders had dared hope was possible. This is an undoubted good, a remarkable achievement, something to treasure, nurture, and grow. But this achievement stands in some tension with our status as a global city. On the one hand, we have Singapore as homeland, the private, intimate space belonging exclusively to people like us. The fact that most of you here know what I am referring to when I say people like us is evidence we know intuitively who belongs to club Singaporean and who doesn't. Almost wordlessly, we know. But on the other hand, we also have the Singapore that is the global city. The most visible reminder of that is the world's presence in our midst. The two million or so here who are not Singaporean, but who are nonetheless essential to our existence. Club Singapore contains many more people than Club Singaporean. Another way to understand this tension is the contrast between our, exist our existence as a nation, like Indonesia or China, India or Japan, with our existence as a city, like London or New York, Shanghai or Paris. On the one hand, our Singaporean identity, which is a national identity, unique, determined, exclusive. On the other hand, our identity as a global city, which is protean, cosmopolitan, diverse, open. Our politics is going to hinge on that tension between nation and city, between national identity and cosmopolitan identity, between club Singaporean and club Singapore. If most Singaporeans cannot at once be members of Club Singaporean as well as Club Singapore, we will go the way of Brexit in Britain. If the benefits of Singapore as a global city do not accrue to all Singaporeans, regardless of economic class or social background, we will go the way of Trumpian politics in the United States. May we have the wisdom to avoid such tragedies. May we last as the world's sole remaining city-state. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Davon, for your opening address. Our first panel today is titled, City Who Owns? In this panel, speakers will examine questions relating to public and private ownership in the city. The implications and impact of different configurations will be discussed. During the question and answer session, for the audience here, please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question and our mic runner will come to you. Please keep your mask on as you ask the question. 
You may also type in your questions online on the online platform. The link and QR code can be found on the table stand in front of you. For our virtual audience, please type in your questions using the Q&A function on the right side of your screen. The moderator of this panel is Mr. Christopher Gee, Senior Research Fellow and Head of Governance and Economy Department at the Institute of Policy Studies. He will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. May I please ask the panelists to make your way to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first panel of this uh, last day of the Singapore Perspectives Conference uh, called Cities. Uh, the panel is entitled Who Owns? Uh, and we will spend the rest of this session exploring the two elements of this simple two-word question, exploring the who and thinking about the idea of ownership in all of its concepts of control, who is an investor, who is invested, of participation, who has access to the city. I'm pleased to have uh, two very distinguished panelists uh, this morning uh, to talk through some of these issues, this topic, very deep topic. And, um, I won't go through their biographies in detail. It, it's, it'll take too long. It'll take us the whole of this uh, panel session to go through them. But I will say this, uh, we have Dr. Chong Kun Hien. Um, she is chairman of the Lee Kuan, Yew, uh, Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities and a professor of practice at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. She's concurrently chairman of the Center for Livable Cities in the Ministry of Devo National Development. She was also previously, as you all know, uh, CEO of HDB, the Housing Development Board, uh, and also of the Urban Redevelopment Authority before that. In 2018, she was the fifth SR Nathan Fellow um, of IPS, and she delivered three speeches, three lectures uh, that uh, contain a lot of the issues that we will talk about this morning. Mr. Manohar Ketani is Senior Executive Director of Capital Land Investment Limited, one of the largest real estate investment managers in the world with a portfolio of $119 billion of assets around many cities around the world. Um, he is also a special advisor um, to the Chairman of the Economic Development Board he was previously Deputy CEO of Ascender Singbridge, CEO of JTC, Deputy Managing Director of the Economic Development Board. He also sits on the um, board of the Building and Construction Authority uh, and also the Institute of Real Estate and Urban Studies at NUS. So they're all both uh, very 
highly qualified to talk through the issues uh, today, and I'm very pleased to have them here. Um, what we'll do is to talk through um, those two issues, right, the who and the question of ownership, um, before we open up uh, to audience engagement and participation. So we'll have this as a bit of a conversation between us. Um, but in the meantime, please feel free to, um, as Francesca said, uh, to submit your questions online uh, and prepare your questions for uh, our panelists later on. So if I may um, then start um, and focus on the who, uh, and I'll start uh, by making this quite an expansive opening and offer to both of you, um, the, the, again, just to explore the, the, the question of who. I think uh, IPS Director Janadas talked about Club Singapore and Club Singaporean. Um, maybe if you can talk about how the um, question of who, right, who's relevant, who are the actors in Singapore, as it was in the past maybe, where we are today and where you think we might be going forward. Dr. So, Chong, maybe you start, and then Manoha, uh, you come later on. Uh, thank you, thank you, Christopher, and uh, hello, everybody. Good morning. It's so nice to see people out here physically, and uh, it's it's great to be here. Thank you for uh, having me, and I suppose Mano too. Uh, when Christopher introduced this topic, I thought this is a very broad topic. You know, how do I talk about who owns? So I suggested that maybe in my remarks, I like to frame the issue. Actually, it's not just who owns, but who owns what. The what is the important thing leading to who owns. And uh, I would like to just uh, maybe touch on three aspects because there are so many things about what the what is, right? One is physical land and assets, and that one we all understand, particularly in Landscar Singapore. So my comments really would be on physical land and assets. The what can also be about who actually have a say in how the city develops. Um, since how the city develops is going to impact all of us. And a third area of the what is actually about digital assets. But here I will not go into detail because there was a session where, uh, about the city in the digital space and there was a very good conversation about who should actually own digital assets. A lot of our data is now owned by companies, you know, not even by government. Uh, but I don't know, maybe the conversation will still go back there. I want to preface some of the things we want to talk about, the roles, by setting the context. In a city, particularly a global city, why do people come together? They come together as an agglomeration of lots of people, sometimes millions of them, because they seek a better life. It's for economic activity, it's for better jobs, it's for making money, and socially because they see uh, more interaction, more amenities that are available to them. Could be schools, better hospitals, better education. But because people are all coming together uh, into a very small space, and particularly in Singapore, with rapid urbanization, it puts a lot of stress on resources. And so if you look at demand and supply in a city, particularly a global city, you will find that particularly land, there's a lot of stress on land. And land prices can increase tremendously. 
So who owns become a very important issue. Do I even get to own anything, right? And at the same time, it soon a lot of these assets, particularly land, becomes investment assets. I'll, I'll touch on it a little in a little bit. So what's the role of the private sector? You say, what are all the players? It's obvious that in a market economy, the distribution of resources is guided by the price signals created by the forces of demand and supply. And so market pricing is important in a market economy because it means that the resources are optimally used and services are delivered efficiently. And private sector, of course, gives us the resources, the creativity, the innovation, the drive to, in the urban development process. They design, they build, um, they uh, operate, they provide services, they maintain. So private sector is very important because no government can build a city on its own. But then there are negatives of a market economy, isn't it? Because if, you, if, it, if it's left purely to the workings of the market, it can create problems. Firstly, the high land cost, the scarcity, particularly of land, will price out a lot of the social goods, hospitals, schools, parks, everything migrates to the highest price. Now, that's a real problem. It can also result in a systematic transformation of land ownership to corporates and large developers who amalgamate land to develop large-scale projects. It could also lead to gentrification. And Saskia Sassen, I think uh, she spoke at an earlier session. For those who don't know her, she's a professor of sociology at Columbia University. She highlights how urban real estate has become the corporate asset class of choice. And uh, she laments as a systemic transformation in the pattern of land ownership over the decades. Um, and it affects what we call the fine texture of the city, the street life, and smaller shops, and public spaces become privatized. So she sees that as a problem. And of course, we all know it in Singapore, land and properties seem to get more expensive. Uh, affordable housing is always a challenge and it exacerbates inequality. So ownership of physical land and assets has a lot of these considerations, right? If it's left purely to market forces. So in comes the government. What does the government do? Well, to run a city, you need a proper governance. Uh, you want to tap on the best of the private sector but at the same time, you have to think about the wider public interests and social goals and to make sure they're not compromised. And the city really needs to be safeguarded for people. And so the government really plays two roles, right? One is it wants to facilitate economic growth because that creates jobs, dynamism, all right, and for our survival. But it also plays a social and redistributive role. So that's the role of the government. And uh, government does this through many, many ways, right? Through the role of planning, we can go a little bit deeper into it later on. Through its plans and through zoning. People see zoning as purely regulatory. Actually, zoning makes sure through long-term planning, it ensures that you have land safeguarded for both economic as well as social goals. And if you think about it, zoning actually provides subsidies for social users. 
If the URA hadn't zoned anything for parks or hospitals or schools, it would just be priced out by market forces. So in a sense, there is a subsidy in planning and zoning. And later on, we can talk about how do you bring in social uh, infrastructure, uh, actually through urban design guidelines, etc. Government also plays a regulatory role to ensure safety, uh, and, uh, which is uh, important. I also want to say that policies is important in playing this redistributive role. Throughout many, many decades, you know, there are many cities all over the world that have what we call appropriation policies. Our term for an appropriation policy is the Land Acquisition Act. And that has certainly transformed Singapore with a lot of the acquisition being done in the 60s and the 70s, enabling government, therefore, to procure land uh, to build a lot more social facilities and infrastructure. Public housing is an obvious example. So in a way, acquisition of land is a form of redistribution of wealth. There's a lot of debates over this, but it's not only done in Singapore, it's done elsewhere too. Uh, and of course, government has intervened in many ways to provide social goods, particularly affordable housing in Singapore. Finally, just a comment on the role of community and civil society. You know, we always talk about the community and the public as if it is one thing. It is not. A city is not homogeneous. It comprises people of different incomes, different needs, different interests. So the second point I talked about is in who decides ownership as who decides how the city will be developed. Therefore, needs to consider Many, many of these groups, different incomes, different education levels, different ethnic groups, different interests. So that is very challenging, right, in the way we plan, the way we develop the city. But I, I would say that a city is not homogeneous. So even when you consult the who, it is actually very complicated. And the who may not even agree with each other, the different interest groups. So we have people who are concerned about greenery, conservation, those who have concerns for the elderly and even the migrant workers. So, but they are very important to the development of the country because the country is being developed for all these people in the community. So the big challenge is how do we do it by listening to many voices and yet being able to balance all the needs of the city and still move forward. I think that would be an interesting point of conversation too. So I am just going to stop there as some uh, thoughts I had when this topic was posed to me. Thank you, Christopher. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Chong, for that. Uh, again, a wide-ranging uh, setting of the context, as it were. I, I like the thing that you said about, um, you know, we need to think about the what as well, who owns what. Uh, and maybe if I can then uh, draw uh, Ms. Manoha into the, into the discussion. Um, and, and maybe ask you to talk from your perspective, um, particularly from the business, the private sector, the developer's angle, um, and also your knowledge about um, you know, the, the commercial and industrial space. So you know, if you could um, you know, share your thoughts on the what, uh, particularly from those perspectives. Thanks. Sure, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, very good morning to all of you. Um, of course, Kunhan has, uh, you know, given her vast experience, uh, you know, painted... Uh, a very interesting and broad framework 
And I must say that uh, Singapore is in a unique situation. I think we have to uh, understand that uh, because of our limited land. And, you know, Janadas gave a very good speech on what it means to be a global city. You know, you can have a very livable city, but if you are not attractive for international business, the livability is not going to be very useful. So, uh, establishing ourselves as an attractive business hub is an absolutely critical component of being a livable city. I think most of us in this audience understand this, but sometimes we, you know, we need just to remind ourselves about that. And I want to go on a little bit more specific to one of the very important points that Kunhian made, uh, which is about trade-offs and how do you decide who owns what. Huh? And this is in Singapore's context. Um, let's take the example of industrial land as a case in point. If you were to allow uh, absolute uh, you know, uh, market forces to determine what is the price of industrial land, uh, then I'm quite sure that Singapore will price itself out of a lot of very important manufacturing activities which are critical for Singapore. Uh, you will remember that about 20% of Singapore's GDP is manufacturing, and there are very good reasons for this, because manufacturing has a tremendous multiplier effect on uh, other aspects of the economy. So it's a very conscious decision, and obviously the kind of manufacturing we are doing continues to evolve, right? So coming back to the point of industrial land. So in the case of industrial land, which makes up about 13 to 14% of Singapore's uh, total land use, uh, we have a policy where certain projects that we want to attract which contribute to good jobs, uh, good land use, uh, good economic growth, and these are the sectors that Singapore is trying to promote, we uh, accord direct allocation to them. And JTC uh, does the direct allocation, but with the support of EDB and ESG. And how we price that land is based on international competitiveness, because we want to price the land right. We do not want to overprice it to a point that Singapore cannot attract those projects, but on the other hand, we also want to price it reasonably high, which shows the, uh, the constraint of land that Singapore faces. So there's an international competitiveness benchmarking. And I think that's a very good example of how we can do things. Because you will realize, ultimately, it's not about maximizing the land price. It is about maximizing the economic returns that that land can give us. You know. Uh, so I think that, in the context of Singapore, where land is so constrained, I think is a, is a very good example. Now, second, uh, you know, your point about uh, public sector and private sector, uh, to the first very question, you know, who, who decides on, uh, on how we use land, I think everybody has to be involved, the public, private, social sector, all of us have to be involved. But I also want to say that, in most cases, the interests of the private and public sector are totally aligned, you know. Uh, as long-term investors, uh, 
it is in our interest to make sure that the assets that we own uh, continue to remain attractive, you know, even 30, 40 years down the road, right? So if you look at capital land, in fact, our, our motto is uh, enriching lives, building con communities and growing sustainability. And this is not just, just because we want to be good corporate citizens, which we obviously want to be, but it is also because it just makes good business sense, right? Uh, it is not about short-term profits. It's about ensuring that the, the vibrancy of the communities, all the stakeholders that we are involved with, uh, you know, are happy so that the assets continue to do in, well in the long term. So I do think that there is a really very strong alignment, nine out of 10 cases, right? There will be those few odd ones where there will be differences. But I think in, a, in the context of Singapore, uh, where there's such strong links between the private and public sector, even those points can be addressed. And I think with a little bit of tweaking, uh, the good relationship that we have with the public and private sector to achieve uh, you know, uh, good outcomes for the city can be even further enhanced. And there are great examples of good public-private sector uh, cooperation. And later, if we have time, I can touch on the One North example just as a case in point. Yeah. So I think I'll pause here. Yeah. yeah I think it's, it's, it's good that you talked about this, um, um, you know, the, the, the potential for cooperation. And I think we should uh, talk about that. That's clearly the future. Um, but, but you did also highlight, and both uh, you and Dr. Chong highlighted this, this potential tension. Right? Um, you did talk about this um, you know, need to balance our international competitiveness with, with the idea of, of you know, the, the, the social good, the community good uh, in, in Singapore. Um, and, and Dr. Chong, you talked about balancing the, the, the social uh, interests as well and having a, an idea of that. So actually, you're both uh, fantastic in this regard. Um, you know, Dr. Chong, you sit on the CIC, which is the Centre for Innovative Cities, which is an academic institution, um, but also the CLC, the Centre for Livable Cities, which is a, a government think tank within the Ministry of National Development. And Manohar, you are, uh, again, you have been in the um, public and the private sectors. So, um, you know, maybe we have this discussion about um, how do we manage this balance? Um, you know, is it the market? Um, you know, the government obviously has a lot of levers. You know, how do we do this, um, especially going forward? Oh, man, we have all of these competing uh, interests. Um, you know, the challenges are, are much more complex today. Yeah. Okay, perhaps I start, and I, I, I wear a little bit of my hat when uh, I used to be in uh, URA and government. Um, it is a very difficult balancing act, but you can do it through a few mechanisms, and I just cite a couple of examples. The long-term planning approach is absolutely essential. Uh, I always say in Singapore, we probably plan to the nth degree. I know some people criticise that, but you plan, but you, you still allow flexibility, I think that is the combination you're trying to achieve. Because of the limited amount of land, you really have to have a very long-term perspective to make sure that you have enough land for everything. And when I mean everything, it means both economic, social goals, leisure, everything that you can think of as much as possible. And of course, there's flexibility and it's a rolling plan and you, you keep uh, changing it. But how do we work with the private sector? Singapore is unique because 
I think that uh, in my own experience, the government takes a facilitative mindset to business as well. It protects the public interest, but it has to facilitate businesses. This is not something you get in every city. In fact, interestingly, I just had an email, someone wrote to me and asked me, can you please share how you can work with the private sector and you know, how does government work with the private sector? So this facilitating mindset is important because government is not just a regulator. There are many good examples. I think the examples of these two dual roles, you know, of regulation and facilitation. Uh, of course, outside the, the, the URA one, because I'm more familiar with it, but actually MAS does the same thing, all right? In, uh, uh, I think, recent years. It promotes the finance industry, but they're also a regulator. Now, in the case of URA, yes, it's a regulator. It plans, it uh, has zoning, etc. But it has, but the regulation is only a means to an end. The end is your objective to be a livable city, a vibrant city, a good city for people to build a home. So I give an example. We're all sitting here in uh, Marina Bay Sands. You know, when we, I was very involved in the planning of uh, Marina Bay, and in particularly Marina Bay Sands, when we first went out to tender out this piece of land, it is not just all about money, you know, whoever can give us the highest price is where we give the land to. No, I believe the land price at that time was fixed. We were actually looking for what they can offer to build the economy and also from a design point of view, what it can bring to the city. So if you go out of this building now, you have all these public spaces, all right, big event spaces, etc. You have a roof garden, it links all the way to garden by the bay. Did it just happen like that? Because I don't know, maybe the developer would, but do you think out of the goodness of his heart, he would just do all these things? Or would he rather put it all to commercial use? So when we saw the land, the urban design guidelines for the development of this building was this thick. All right. And we guided and we worked with the developer. But to the developer's credit, they were very good. And the architect, they were very mindful that the city, it has to fit well with the city. It has to put in the public spaces, bring in the vibrancy. And actually, over time, many developers realized that putting in public spaces is actually good for business Absolutely. because it attracts footfall, it attracts vibrancy, it attracts traffic. Why not? You become a key destination. And the good thing is, as Bano has said, that recently, I think there's a lot more concerns about ESG, right? Environment, social, and governance issues because it is good for business. So government in facilitating has also got to guide through its plans and guidelines and regulations. But developers need to be open-minded to realize that, hey, this is actually good for us too. And if you can get the two to combine, you have a very successful city. If you look around Marina Bay, I still love to walk around Marina Bay. All these public spaces and activity, and with developers throwing in programming, it just adds so much to the city. And th this is how you bring both together, the economic and the social. I just stopped there. Sure. Manu, <laughs> Manu uh, may have more comments. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think, you know, when we look at any 
development, uh, we got to look at uh, product excellence, service excellence, community excellence. So hardware, software, hardware, you know. Uh, so for any precinct that you develop, you need to look at these things, you know. And that's the reason why I said that in most cases, uh, the interests are aligned. And then, of course, it comes to the critical issue of pricing, right, you know. And I think there, too, the government has to strike a balance, right? Uh, you also want to get the right price of, for the land. So on the one extreme, you will have government land sales, where the, the highest price gets for it. And I think that's fine if it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a plot development. Uh, you can do it on that basis. But if there are bigger developments, you can go for um, quality price standards, you can go for concept price standards, or even the extreme that Kunian highlighted, where the price is fixed, and then you go based on the concept, right? So I think the government has all these levers, and depending on what the government wants to achieve, the private sector will respond, right? So I think ultimately, at least in Singapore's context, and I must admit that some of these things may or may not work in other countries, but in Singapore's context, actually, they work, they work quite well. So let me now touch on the uh, One North example because there are, there are some quite interesting uh, learnings from there. Uh, so when Singapore decided to develop a new, uh, you know, business, uh, new age business park, uh, they identified One North as the place, and uh, we also had some land constraints. We knew that we could not make it like the campuses of the 1980s, you know, where in order to do good science, you need quiet and greenery, right? Mm -hmm. By the 90s, it had changed. The key word was vibrancy, collaboration, third space, right? Uh, so the idea of One North came up. Uh, so here too, the government, in that case, JTC, did the master planning. But the idea right from the onset was that uh, JTC will kickstart the project, uh, put in some of the key elements, and then get the private sector to come in, right? And I don't know what the exact mix is now. Uh, but I think that has worked out quite well, right? Uh, with, as I said, the government setting the overall vision and obviously you have to adapt it with time because industries are changing. Uh, and we also push the envelope to uh, try out new things, right? So, for example, we didn't have, uh, you know, a restriction on having how much white space within a plot, but at the whole precinct level. So these were things where we were pushing the envelope. So I think it has turned out to be uh, quite a good collaboration model. And I think, you know, JTC is adopting a similar approach for other developments as well, whether it's Pongol Digital District, Jurong Innovation District, where the government starts off the project, has the overall plan, and then, uh, you know, uh, involves the private sector uh, for the further developments. So I do think it all works, and as I said, within this, you can then decide on what approach you want to take. Do you only go on a price tender? Do you go on a price quality tender? Or do you go on a fixed price tender? And there, I think what approach you take depends on what you want to achieve and how impactful that specific development is going to be for that whole precinct. Can I uh, approach further, though, um, and, and think about um, you know, 
maybe just take the example of One North, um, and you know, that, that's clearly um, tenanted, occupied by not just uh, you know, Singaporean businesses, clearly, uh, but a lot of multinational businesses. And you know, how, how do you think um, you know, they feel about ownership of that space and their connectedness, therefore, um, to the city? Right? Um, does that business model um, you know, help facilitate that, that, that connectedness, um, that ownership of, of that space, and then therefore they become you know, corporate citizens, I guess, of, of Singapore? I think, you know, um, Singapore is a global hub, right? So we have to be attractive both for global businesses as well as local businesses. Obviously, as in all countries, uh, small and medium-sized companies uh, should have certain, uh, you know, uh, uh, benefits, uh, whether it's in terms of loans, and I think all countries have that. I think ESG has many programs to support our local businesses. But when it comes to uh, allocating space, right, now, whether it's a multinational or a local company, I don't think we should distinguish. Ultimately, it's uh, about which company finds it attractive to be where. Okay? So if you just take one note as a case in point, you know, if memory serves me right, there are over 400 companies, uh, and there are both multinationals as well as local companies. Right? I mean, uh, the more recent local companies like Grab, Razor, SEA, these are all companies that grew out of Singapore. I mean, they've got very significant operations here. Obviously, when we started One North, we didn't know about that. Uh, but, but, you know, we have been so fortunate here in Singapore and in Southeast Asia that we are developing many exciting new unicorns, right? And in fact, for them being in a precinct like One North was a great place to also demonstrate their, their identity, right? As, as new high growth companies. And to add to that, you know, we also have uh, incubators for startups. So I think there are over 500 companies uh, within the precinct of One North uh, interacting with the multinationals, interacting with the research institutes. So it has turned out to be something very positive. I think one thing I must mention about One North is that when we conceptualize One North, we also wanted all our applied research institutes to be located there, in the area of biomedical sciences in Biopolis and in the area of applied sciences in Fusionopolis. And that in itself, uh, I think, is tremendously advantageous. Firstly, you cluster everybody together, uh, and then that facilitates working together with industry. And second, and just as important, is that you break down silos because you will recognize that a lot of innovation actually takes place where technologies cross. Mm. And by having people physically close together and well-coordinated, yeah. it facilitates that. So I think all those were also the thought process when we, when we developed One North. And I think all said and done, it has developed quite nicely. And just to add on to that, that adds to Singapore's competitiveness. When you say we are small, it's a disadvantage. When you say we are compact, it becomes an advantage. Yep. You know? So for many companies, doing cross-sectoral research works best in Singapore, 
right? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you can talk to the Institute of Microelectronics, you can talk to the Institute of Material Science, all within one location, and then people talking and working closely together. And that, in a way, is also a unique advantage that Singapore is able to create because of this planning. And, and Dr. Chong, I mean, you know, again, extending Manaha's ideas about, um, you know, kind of that collaboration um, into also the social realm. You know, uh, you talked earlier about zoning uh, as a way to kind of just uh, drive, um, you know, allocation of, of, of land. Um, you know, how, how can we better think about zoning and, and, and planning in that sense uh, to kind of combine uh, multiple goals, right, and uh, the interests of, of different uh, groups? Of course, zoning firstly uh, allocates land for different users, so that's fundamental, right? But in the planning, in fact, more and more, you, you don't have pure zones anymore. We're introducing a lot of mixed use because it really adds to the vibrancy. I, I wanted to come back, you know, uh, it reflects a little bit of what Mano is saying. You know, if you say, oh, who gets to go to the only the science centre, but what happens, oh, sorry, the One North, what happens to all the small SMEs, etc. All right, just as we, I was mentioning about the issue of, is there gentrification? Do the big companies take up a lot more land? What happens to the smaller guys? But, you know, in, in a city, you have different places for different types of companies and different types of users. So, for example, in Marina Bay, you have very big footprints and people always say, why do you make such big footprints, you know, Marina Bay Sands, uh, Marina Bay Financial Centre, what happened to all the SMEs? Well, you, that's because you're only looking at Marina Bay, but Singapore is not only Marina Bay. There are many other areas where different types of companies and different users will locate. And we have safeguarded and conserved a lot of the conservation areas because we were able to build the big footprints in Marina Bay through reclamation. So this balance in being able to provide different types of land for different users is very important. So similarly for social users, uh, when we now plan all the commercial areas, it is always a mix. Right? Your neighborhood center is a very good example of mix for community. And even in the city, URA is trying very hard to bring back mixed use to the city and not just traditionally offices. I mean, Shenton Way at night is just very quiet. Of course, mm. now it's even worse, right? But over the years, we've introduced back some residential and the hope is over time, uh, you can mix the users. So uh, I would say planning is still very fundamental in helping to achieve this mix and making sure there are different places and spaces for different people, different companies, uh, different groups of people. So that mix is important. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll have another session on planning uh, immediately after this, uh, this session. So um, you know, uh, we can carry on that conversation specifically about planning uh, there. Um, maybe we can now uh, maybe pivot uh, to the second part of that uh, two-word question and think about ownership and uh, really Consider the idea of, of you know, the rights to use, the lease idea, and, and its, um, its use in or its capacity to, to, for rejuvenation. I think uh, that's the idea that um, we've had. Uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit um, about that. Um, you know, again, in, in the context of the, 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 you know, the city as a whole, 
but also specifically in, in, in certain areas, uh, housing, obviously, and, um, and um, uh, in commercial, uh, industrial. Ownership of land and property and the issue of leasehold is very emotional. It's a very emotional topic, particularly, uh, I don't know, maybe it's very Asian, right? It's very emotional. Uh, but in the case of Singapore, we cannot compare to other countries and cities which have uh, lots of land. In the case of Singapore, in fact, I spent many decades worrying about how do you continue to have a virtuous cycle of land for future generations. The issue of uh, leases on land really is something that spans across generations. So there are a few reasons for it, right? Leasehold land in Singapore, I mean, the government had a lot of land whenever they sell, it's always on leasehold. Why? Because it enables a virtual uh, recycling of land for future generations. That's the simple answer, because nothing lasts forever, right? 30, 60, 90 years, you have to redevelop. If everything is owned by a few people, where is the next generation going to get their housing and all the other facilities? Where is business going to get the land? It would be just much more difficult, right? And it's also for economic dynamism. The leasehold mechanism, and here maybe Mahono can add a little bit more, they are not uh, necessary all 99 years. Some are 30, some are 60. In fact, in China, it's 70, right, for housing. Some of the users, uh, for example, um, commercial users, uh, industrial users, they're only on 30 years. Why? Because things change so much. When they are shorter lease, firstly, the land is cheaper for the, for the developer and the entrepreneurs. But at the same time, it allows the change to take place even as uh, uh, economic changes take place. So that's why different leases. The other thing is to enable comprehensive rejuvenation. Uh, when plans are done, we actually look at leases and we try to ensure that leases, even if they're renewed, they were more or less finished around the same time in a large area, aside from uh, housing, which is 99 years. Reason is because it enables an opportunity to rejuvenate a larger area together when the leases complete. And you, you can see a lot of this uh, happening, right? Uh, land in the north, you know, for industry or Sambavang shipyards, when they end, well, then you have uh, potential for rejuvenation. So the leasehold concept is actually a very important concept, particularly in the case of Singapore. Uh, but I would say even in large cities, because a city cannot just sprawl and sprawl forever, you know. So if you have a lot of activity in a certain boundary, it needs to rejuvenate. You need to recycle the brownfield sites. So maybe I'll just stop there. Yeah. Um, Manoha, yeah. the, um, there's actually one question already related specifically to uh, industrial land uh, leases. And uh, again, it touches on the point about you know, how quickly does, you know, we need to change this idea, um, you know, to make this uh, space quite dynamic, evolving with, with the times. Um, yeah, we could do that, uh, yeah, deal with that. Yeah. See, because of our constraints, of course, there's always a question of trade-offs. Huh? Um, we also have to bear in mind that businesses want predictability. Okay, so we have to balance between being agile and being 
predictable, okay? That's why I always remind all my, uh, you know, when I was in the public sector that we must be very careful of any policy changes we make that they do not have unintended consequences. You know, we talk about trust being our number one selling point in Singapore. So all these things, when we change policies, it, it touches on trust a little bit. It is not intended, definitely, right? But it touches on it. That's why we just need to be very careful when we, when we make changes in policies. So I come to this tricky question of industrial land. I explain why industrial land is important for us. And in the early days of our, our industrialization in the 60s, we used to give companies that qualified for direct allocation 60-year leases. Okay. And it was the right thing to do, you know, because you need to run your cash flows, you need to have predictability and all that. But just take into consideration this. Uh, when I was a young man, and that's not very long ago, <laughs> uh, in the 80s, uh, our GDP per capita was less than 10,000 US dollars. Okay? Today, one generation later, it's 60,000. So we have grown sixfold, right? So obviously, the industries that we were attracting at that time, a large majority of them are no longer suitable because our job is not only to create jobs, it's to create good jobs and improve the quality of life of our people. So we were uh, labor intensive, then we moved to skill intensive, then capital intensive, and then now we are more knowledge and innovation intensive. We have to find new expressions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why, and when you look at all the land occupied by people who came in the 60s and the leases are still there and the land not being put to good use, uh, so then, therefore, the discussion started that for direct allocated land, should we reduce it to 30%? Because the pace at which the economy is changing is tremendous. So it was a difficult decision, but I think it was the right decision. So today, as a general case, when industrial land is allocated, it is for 30 years, you know? Uh, and that's where I think... So, so I think when you explain to people, they understand. Of course, nobody is happy, you know, if you were... <laughs> A person taking the land, you would rather want it for 60 than yes. 30, right? So I think you really have to articulate this, and these are the difficult trade-offs that you need to make in a, in a land-scarce country like Singapore. Having said that, Kunyan is absolutely right. Other cities have also done that, either because they saw what we have done, or they, in fact, do it one better. In, in, in certain cities in, in China, it's even 20 years for industrial land, right? Uh, so I think that's where we need to make trade-offs. But at the same time, we also need to be careful that just because 30 years works for one segment, it does not mean it should be the case for other segments, right? So I think if it's a more generic building, if it's not a specialized building that's directly allocated, it's a, it's, it's a business park building which, you know, where tenants can change and the building doesn't need to change too much, we must have different considerations, right? So. I think that is the, uh, the balance that we, that we need to make, but I do want to highlight the point that every time we make a policy change, we must be cautious of the fact that from the business people's perspective, actually predictability is very important. And when we do make such major changes, we must be able to articulate this clearly to the industry on why we are doing this. Thank you, Manal. Um, maybe in the interest of time, maybe we now um, 
I think about two more factors before I open it up to, to questions from the audience. Um, and it's the idea of this, um, the digital city uh, and the sustainable city. Um, obviously, we've, we've done great things with respect to um, infrastructure build out uh, for the physical city. Um, it is you know, uh, clearly one of the things that we're renowned for. Um, but you know, given COVID, given the pandemic, We've seen that digital technology is you know, much more important than ever before. Um, you know, our, our reach is much, more, um, it's much greater uh, if we can harness that digital uh, technology. Um, and that there's the potential there for us to expand beyond our influence, beyond our 740 square uh, kilometers of space, physical space. So in, in your mind, um, you know, who's controlling that? Who's in charge of putting that in place? Who owns that ultimately? Um, either one of you okay. really. I mean, well, it's, 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 it's a, a very question. broad question that requires another session of its own, but let me try it. Yeah. Let me make an attempt maybe to narrow it a little bit. Definitely, I think uh, over the years, particularly in the last 10 years, the digital space and the physical space is merging. It's intrinsically linked. You, 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 you cannot separate. So the obvious one that we are very familiar with is the use of digitalization to run all our services, right? To make services reliable, within easy reach, convenient, right? Everything from uh, running and to achieve sustainability from solar power, to the way you run your lifts, to make it reliable, efficient, and safe. So, so these are things that go into your infrastructure. Digitalization is absolutely uh, essential. The pandemic brought about using the digitalization as a result of the pandemic is more a behavioral change. It's causing a behavioral change. And the way people work, and uh, I'm actually quite glad to see all of you here rather than staying at home and tuning in, you know, that you're prepared to be here in a big group. <laughs> and it has changed the way we work, the way we live, the way we study, the way we buy things, right, online, the way we move with transport. It's completely changed. So, again, digitalization is not only with the physical space, it's gone into behavioral and the way we live our life, which in turn has a link to physical space, right? Because we talk about now hybrid working, how many people are prefer, preferring to work from home, what's going to happen to the city. I think there were some conversations in the other sessions that talked about this. Ed Gleaser talked about this. Uh, I personally think that I don't think we will all just stay at home. I think maybe a hybrid, all right, form of working because we are social animals. We need to interact, you know. You can be productive, but you may not be creative if you are just staying at home. So I think these are the things uh, where digitalization is just intrinsically linked into our lives and the physical uh, city as well. When you say who owns, that's a very complicated question. So I, I give just uh, two examples where it needs a lot of thought, right? In the area of infrastructure, who owns? It's a very important question because 
Should some infrastructure be owned by government or by private companies? You completely outsource. That's a very important question. Even the running of lifts in, uh, say, HDB, right? It's important for HDB to have owned the data of the lifts, even though the running of the lifts is by a private company. Because with the data, you can get very good insights to improve reliability. If it's just owned by one company, then you have a problem. So very major infrastructure is a big question. Who should be owning is a very, very important question. Power generation. Well, there's been, uh, uh, in the last two, two decades, no, there's a lot of privatization, right? But of course, when you privatize, you're careful in having levers to still control to ensure reliability. So these things you have to think about when you say who owns, particularly infrastructure. Uh, the other portion is data assets. That one is, needs a huge, huge debate and conversation. A lot of our data is now owned by companies. And if you introduce Metaverse, I don't know, our whole life, you know, our alter egos go into a different universe. And everything we have is now owned by, a lot of the data is by companies. I'm sometimes quite amazed that people would give away your name, your IC and everything for a $5 discount or $10 discount, something you buy to a shop. But do you realize you're giving away a lot of data? So who owns some of these things? Uh, I don't have completely the answer, but obviously things like whether it's health records, very personal income data, uh, the government has it and it guards it very, very carefully, right? But there are a lot of things we do online, you know? Um, the AI actually study the patterns, the way you buy, right? That's why they push you a lot of the products. You can get similar product if you, the moment they know you buy this. So the pattern in which you buy, you consume, all this can be uh, collected, studied and analyzed. And we give a lot of our data to uh, telcos. The telcos know exactly <laughs> probably who you call, where you go, the patterns of movement. So who owns that data? And to get that data is not so easy for other purposes, whether it's in the public interest. It's also not so easy to get them because the government doesn't own that data. I don't have an answer, but what I'm saying is that we really need to think very carefully a lot more about these things. Uh, I was in a conference about two, three years ago, and in fact, there was a huge debate on who owns the data and who should be paying for the data. In fact, should we allow people to use our data or should we even charge, charge them for taking our data? So that, there's a lot of debate. I don't think there's a clear answer yet. Okay. Well, anything else? No, I think Kunian has spoken. All I just want to say is that for us, Digital technology is critical in how we manage our properties, so intelligent building management systems to monitor performance, to get predictive analytics, uh, and to you know, uh, basically improve the customer experience. So for us, it's a critical enabler. I must admit, we have not spent too much time still, but I think it's an important question on who owns data, because you know, moving forward, that's going to become more and more critical. And the other thing I just want to add is that even when you have physical spaces, you need to have a digital strategy. So for our retail malls, while we have physical malls, we also have a program, let's say, for example, e-capital malls. Because this interaction between online and offline, whether you see a product 
online and buy it offline or see it offline and buy it online, all this is becoming interchangeable. So as a company, you really need to have a strategy which, uh, you know, uh, which uh, addresses your, your tenants, your shoppers, both in the physical as well as in the virtual world. I think uh, you both pointed out that, that there's a lot more thinking, a lot more research that needs to be done in this space. Um, it, it does, again, I think, uh, strike to that distinction between um, you know, uh, the, the city limits. Uh, if you're not uh, careful about um, differentiating ourselves, um, you know, what's unique about Singapore uh, in that digital space, um, you know, then, then I think we may lose a bit of that um, thing that makes us special. Um, so yeah, a lot more work maybe needs to be done. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully the IPS uh, and, and the other uh, think tanks uh, that might be uh, in your space, uh, uh, you know, might be thinking about that. Maybe Questions? just a response to that. I think we can be special because we, we are small. We are highly digital uh, with the smart nation movement. But what we need to do now is to think about the governance. If Singapore is able to work out that uh, governance framework, thinking through some of these things, you know, ownership of data, protection, and at the same time get insights uh, from the data, which is what this whole smart nation movement is about, getting the right insights uh, to uh, benefit society, to benefit the economy, but at the same time balance it with some sort of a governance framework and standards. Then we are really ahead and maybe it's something that uh, uh, could be, be shared you know, with many other cities. Very good. Thank you. Uh, I think we uh, should move on to the questions from, from the audience. Uh, again, uh, maybe if I go to the questions that have been posed online first and then uh, come back to audience uh, uh, questions here um, shortly. Maybe I can kick off first uh, with a um, question from, actually, um, Professor uh, uh, Kishoma Bubani, I think, who is in the audience here today. Um, and he asks, again, something that's related to um, uh, IPS director's opening remarks. Um, it's about this um, idea or the paradox uh, between um, uh, a Singaporean um, and um, also being cosmopolitan. And um, I, I guess the question, if I can paraphrase, is how can we um, you know, increase that, that more cosmopolitan outlook uh, to an increasingly uh, nationalist um, uh, Singaporean identity. I thought, let, yeah, yeah. Go let me give you a chance. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I mean, Kishore's question is absolutely valid. Uh, and I, I really like the way uh, Janadas put it, you know, a Singapore and sing being Singapore and being, sing being in Singapore and being Singaporean. But for me, I think it's, uh, absolutely critical that we uh, remain open uh, that while we should be proud of our heritage as being pure Singaporean, Singaporean, but also uh, embrace the idea of, uh, you know, uh, non-Singapore citizens coming to our shores to make a living for themselves. And it is and I don't think we are doing them a favor, right? I think we have to do it also because it benefits us, you know, and then really embrace them, right? Um, 
Now, how do we do it? I think that's, that's the more difficult question, right? Uh, so I think we really need to find uh, common points. And unfortunately, there is a trend towards more nationalization everywhere across the world. So again, if we can go the other way around, that not follow the populist trend and really be uh, a home for these people, I think it can create a big difference. In fact, in the uh, area of uh, industry uh, promotion, actually that's what we are doing. So actually EDB's strategy, you know, about 10, 15 years ago was uh, for Singapore not only to be a host, but to be a home to country. So we used to call it from host to home. And what that really means is that the companies really feel uh, involved in Singapore's future. They understand our thought process. And because of that, they were actually willing to make huge bets on Singapore. They were putting activities in Singapore. I mean, we used to call them the crown jewels, which they would 20, 30 years ago never dream of putting in. And it is because of what we had demonstrated in terms of trust, in terms of knowledge, in terms of connectedness, in terms of life, right? So I think this, it, it takes time to, to win this confidence. So I think what we succeeded in doing for companies, I think we should also do for, for people, right? So anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, uh, Kishore always asks this <laughs> difficult question, you know, then it's not a simple answer. But I, I think there are a few things to, well, that immediately comes to mind. Firstly is the pace. The pace at which we see uh, foreigners come to Singapore. I think Singapore has always been very open. I mean, a lot of parents really came from overseas, you know. But when the pace is very fast, uh, they see this change, right? The change is more stark and people don't have time to integrate. Maybe that's something to think about, is the pace. And I think over the last few years, we have already moderated the pace somewhat. Secondly, I think it's about the sharing of benefits. Why do we become xenophobic? I think people being very naturally, they, they compare, right? Why do they come in and do they take away my job? Or do they live only in Marina Bay? <laughs> you know? So there's this comparison they make. So it's about how do we build trust in assuring that, in fact, you grow jobs. And how do we create trust that people can have a share of the benefits? So, of course, the, uh, lately, the idea of putting public housing in prime areas is a good example, right? Mm. Of making sure that you don't have these enclaves. In fact, many cities, particularly in Europe, feel this even more when they have huge immigration waves. I, I, uh, and... Uh, I, I may have said this before, I've had mayors, I mean, previously, our ethnic integration policy for public housing was something never accepted. But now I, I, I had mayors coming to talk to me about it in, from Europe. So again, it's being very conscious on the sharing of benefits so that that difference is not, I think, very, very stark. The other thing is culture. Culture is a lot about communication. I don't know whether there are more things that we can do to better integrate, to better explain, to better share, so that there's a better understanding. Just as Singapore has always been a, 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 a multiracial, uh, multi with different ethnic groups, different religions, different cultures, 
this cosmopolitan and with more other people coming in, it just increases the types. So why can't we have a better understanding? Maybe there should be some way of promoting even cohesion, you know. Uh, we, we focus a lot on social cohesion, social cohesion among Singaporeans. But maybe we should also be thinking about how do we get us to better understand the people who are coming to work and live here and how do they get to better understand Singaporeans. Maybe we should be thinking about that too. So I, I, I'll just stop there, but just some thoughts, you know, on, on Kishore's question. I'm sure we'll explore this uh, question in a little bit more detail uh, in the session on who belongs uh, later on today. Uh, maybe uh, in the interest of time, maybe what I will do is look, um, yes, uh, Ambassador Chan is, uh, is looking for uh, a mic. If uh, we can bring a mic to her and she can ask a question. Um, please, uh, Sherry. Okay, I've been asked to stand up. Uh, thank you. I would like to thank Kun Hien and uh, Manoha for a very provocative, thought-provoking session. Uh, let me put it this way. Whenever we say, who owns, and you've answered private, public, the, your answer to private is largely industry and business. I did not hear very much the discussion about people, you know, in this whole discussion. Now, when you think of the images of San Francisco and the tents all around, you know, where people are camping out in the YouTubes, we see this. You think about Hong Kong, and we know the problems of housing. So the question of who owns must incorporate the people dimension. Now, Singapore is different. We are lucky that initially, certainly and even now, government has got it right. The housing provided in Singapore is sort of taken care of by the government. So it seems to me that when you talk of people owning, somehow is encompassed and the custodian is the government. Going forward, is it good enough? And if government is a custodian of who owns in terms of the city and what shares of land, etc., they get, how is a conversation of the government and the people being conducted? You talked of leases, and I don't want to touch the very thorny question of the leasehold of housing. But I, I'd like to hear the panel talk about that, how are you going to work out, you know, the idea of the people and their voices in who owns. You know, S Susan Feinstein has talked about the just city, and I think that concept is central. And for Manoha, maybe you, will, you want to touch on also, if government improves the conversation and has a conversation with the people, how does real estate business have con a conversation in what you own, what you build, what you create with the participation of the people? Uh, okay, uh, Heng Chi, because there's a strong echo, I hope I got your question. Eh? So maybe I touch on the people, people segment. 
Uh, and in fact, this was the second thing I thought about on the what, on what. It's the what is really about who gets a say in how the city is being developed. I don't know whether that is the, the nub of the question. Yes? Yeah, okay. Okay, good. Thank you very much. And uh, you are right. I think uh, several decades ago, it's, it's a lot more top-down, right? A lot more top-down. But we have definitely realized in the last two, two, two three decades, two decades at least, yeah, that uh, you can't because there are many groups that you need to understand. And, and as the trade-offs become more stark, it is so important to speak to different groups. And uh, it's not easy. And I, I myself have gone through many of these conversations. If you speak to one group, they want this. If you speak to another group, you want that. But you can't give both of them whatever they want, you know. So the joint solutioning is not so easy, but it's an important uh, uh, way of hearing from different groups and finding the solution. I found that uh, one good way of doing it, in my own experience, was to put different groups together. And uh, because, and, and we only play a facilitating role. We do not make the decisions, for example, right? If you are trying to find uh, some good joint solutioning together, or you're consulting with several groups, putting them together at the same table is actually very useful. And uh, the government, and in this case, it was uh, URA very often, they were just facilitating, providing information. And if you provide information, uh, when people discuss, you'll be surprised that most times they come to the same conclusion. <laughs> because any rational person will know that, okay, you can't have this, maybe you can do that. And I find that is a very good process. And I say that I think we're learning. It, we're still learning how to do this very well. Uh, we are consulting, but sometimes that may, some people feel it's not sufficiently genuine. So the process of consulting is important. But the process of deciding is also very important because at the end of all the conversations, a decision does have to be made, right? And that's what I suppose uh, a governing is about. You have to make those decisions. Uh, one thought I have really is, I, I'm a strong believer that you need to share the dilemmas because sometimes we always tell people the good things, right? And so people say, oh, you can do all this. Why can't you do A, B, C, D, E, you know? But you really need to share dilemmas. I think the population is mature. We should be sharing dilemmas that if you do this, you have this. If you do this, you have this. And people can then debate and talk about it. They may not need to agree with each other or even with the, the government, it doesn't matter. But there's an understanding. I think that's the beginning of a very good conversation. So I, I would just stop there because uh, I, I have met many, many different interest groups and, and they are, because their interest group, that's what they're interested in, their own interest, <laughs> right? So what we need is to be able to share that there are other interest groups that may not agree or if you give to one group, you cannot give to another. So where's the solution? So you need to be able to share these things and people talking together uh, will probably come up with a better solution. 
not everybody will like it, but perhaps they will accept that that's the best balance you can achieve. Okay? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, Hengchi, just like Kishore, you, you also ask very difficult questions. And Kunyan has addressed the difficult part, so I'll just do the simple part. Uh, now, for us as a private developer, when we do precinct level developments, uh, today, even more so than before, I think the community has to be at the center. That's why I talked about product excellence, service excellence, community uh, excellence. So, uh, you know, like we are redeveloping the old Liang Court, right, uh, into a mixed development. So really what we are looking at is really the, the whole customer journey, right? How will they feel comfortable? How will there be footfall? How will there be vibrancy? So in a way, that's from the private developer's perspective. As I mentioned earlier, it's not only about being a good corporate citizen, it also makes, it just makes good business sense, right? So I think that has really become an integral part. And the same applies as we are redeveloping, you know, uh, Science Park, which is, you know, over 30, 40 years, that we really put the community at, at the center. And there are two reasons for this. Firstly, it's also the way people work. It used to be different. People didn't used to like to interact that much. But now it's much more about interactions. People like to discuss things over coffee, you know, um, meet in a more casual environment and so on. But I must also add that one very interesting project, uh, you know, is Sengkang Central, where actually as part of the uh, tender requirements, the government had also put in elements like having a community centre there, childcare centre, and many such, uh, if you so will, uh, social aspects into it, really prescribed it in such a way. And again, I think as long as the direction is clear, what do we want there, right? Then I think... Uh, the private sector will respond accordingly, you know. So actually, uh, there is lots of levers that the public sector can, can use in order to achieve certain outcomes. It is only for us to think what are the trade-offs and, and how we want to do that. Thanks. I regret that uh, we've come to the end of this session. There's a lot of questions that unfortunately I haven't been able to, as a moderator, um, get through. Uh, they touch on uh, issues of heritage, um, of, of this whole idea of um, intergenerational equity uh, in, in the sense of land pricing. Um, maybe we'll save that for a fuller discussion uh, as we develop some of these ideas further. Um, maybe if I can then um, just end the session and uh, just to thank uh, Dr. Chong and Mr. Manoha uh, for spending their time here and their insights. And, um, and we look forward to um, a, a good session, uh, two sessions more uh, before the ministers uh, discuss dialogue this afternoon. Thank you, uh, thank you everyone. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.